Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Matthew Perkowski. Matthew's a computer technology guy and a crypto guy, and really interesting. I ran across him on Twitter, where he has perhaps in the top five best value per syllable of any of the tweeters that I follow. You can follow him at, at Matt. Perkowski, P-I-R-K-O-W-S-K-I. Well worthwhile. I actually reached out to him based on a tweet or two that he did, and it turned out we both have an interest in the concept of emergence. You know, regular listeners to the show know that's a topic I like to talk about from time to time, and Matthew's got some very interesting thoughts. So welcome aboard, Matt. Thanks, Jim. It's awesome to be here. Really happy to uh, talk to you today about emergence and all things related, I guess, on the, the eve of this interesting new phase in our geopolitical reality. I guess for people who are listening at home, you know, this is a moment in time where we have an interesting emergent phenomenon happening on the world stage. Uh, many different uh, perspectives that have been put forward that don't necessarily map to what emerged. And there's an interesting question as to why that is. And I think that, you know, I think that one of the reasons is we don't actually have any widespread framework for thinking about the concepts of how patterns and processes come into being that we talk much about in our education system, that we've wrapped our heads around as a culture, that we really understand scientifically. This is beginning to come together. And you know, I, I think that what we can talk here about today, or one of the things I'm interested in talking about here today is, is how we seem to be moving toward a better understanding of what this process of emergence is and how it, it can be applied to a wide variety of uh, a wide variety of patterns, whether those are geopolitical in terms of, of, of warfare or diplomacy, or whether those are, are natural in terms of uh, naturally emerging uh, structures like the origin of life itself or just you know, our day-to-day -day life in terms of our communication structures and, and what even makes a good conversation. So you know, it's a wide spectrum of topics that we can cover, but I'm looking forward to, to going down uh, any, any of the rabbit holes you wish to cover. All right, let's get down to it. And for our listeners' sake, and they do listen. Some of these people will be listening two years from now. It's amazing, the tale on these podcasts. Today is Thursday, February 24th. Assuming the world still exists in two years, that's the day the Russians launched their all-out attack on Ukraine. So that's what Matthew was referring to. So emergence, an interesting and, to my mind, extraordinarily important topic, but as you said, one that most people don't really have their hands around, and it's certainly not taught in school the way I would suggest that it probably should be. Let me throw out a definition of emergence, and why don't you react to it? This is more or less a textbook example. Emergence occurs when an entity is observed to have properties its parts do not have on their own. Properties or behaviors which emerge only when the parts interact in a wider whole. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's it's an interesting example of, of, of a way of looking at uh, this concept of emergence that actually ties into 
the history of this idea and, and how it's actually evolving and changing a little bit, or at least how I perceive it to be changing and, and how some authors in the space are also uh, authors and researchers in the space are perceiving it to evolve. Um, you know, if you look at where the concept of emergence first came from, it actually goes all the way back to J.S. Mill. This was in the middle of this enlightenment period where we were you know, very much in the modality of simplifying processes and reducing them to mathematical formula. And so, you know, there's a quote from him. It's a very long quote, so I'll paraphrase. But he's, he's saying, you know, essentially in many of these processes, we see that there's this additive property and the additive property is pretty straightforward. You know, one plus one equals two, or, you know, you, you see different properties of, um, you know, let's say heat or thermodynamics, something of, of, of one level of heat added to another level of heat has a, as a additive tendency there. Um, but then he was turning this focus to living systems. Uh, he was turning this focus to the types of processes that tend to exhibit some new uh, or novel phenomenon only when they come into relation in a particular uh, particular form. And you know this debate then extended. You know, as part of this this evolutionary tension between uh, reductionism and vitalism at the time in the early nineteenth century. And basically, you know, reductionism. I kind of like to think of it more as dissectionism. Right, this idea of we're looking at something from the outside. We're looking at a process or, or a substance or, or a structure. And to understand it, we start reducing it or, or dissecting it into different component parts. Oftentimes, we sort of try to cleave that structure, hopefully at its joints, joints that seem natural. You know, if you're talking about an actual dissection of an animal, like maybe you would actually cleave something at its joints, or, or maybe you would try to take a systems approach with skin and then vasculature, et cetera, et cetera. But fundamentally, what you're doing is taking this thing apart and you know, you very quickly come to notice that as soon as you start taking a living thing apart, it ceases to be living, right? So, so there's this question of okay, there there's an, a non-additive aspect of this, and vitalists initially thought you know they they you know Elon Vital the idea that there was some substance to life that that was permeating physical matter but was separate from physical matter that was injecting material reality with a life force. Um, and the, the reductionists or the dissectionists, as I'm saying here, um, very much took the opposite tack. And, you know, obviously the history we live in, uh, the sort of material reductionism won that day and for good reason. You can make a lot more progress when you're actually trying to just talk about the parts that are there and how they're interacting as you reduce them. But in that context, that tension from that, um, you know, a whole philosophy of emergentism came forth. Right? You could say it even emerged. And, and it's really fascinating because it was trying to find a middle road where the whole could be more than just the sum of its parts. Uh, and that actually introduced a lot of philosophical problems in some ways, right? Because, you know, when you have something and you have a property, like let's say that you have, uh, we're talking about water molecules. And let's say that you reduce, you have many water molecules and you reduce their temperature and they become ice. Well, ice has its own macroscopic properties. It's slippery. Uh, someone can slip on it. Well, you could say the emergent property of ice, you know, can have a causal influence on the world, right? But that causal influence, uh, you know, from the reductionist perspective, all the causal influences have to flow upwards from the material properties of the actual physical molecules. And so you can kind of get into a little bit of a problem where these new causal structures are injected and then could in theory act top down or bottom up. And 
you know, as we know in, in terms of <laughs> reductive materialism, we don't like to have loops. We don't like to have cycles because cycles make things very difficult to define. And so there's a lot of philosophical argument about this idea that you can actually have um, new causal structures entering the picture uh, and having those interact with previous properties that were in theory the source of that emergence to begin with, right? That's the loop. That's the weird loop. Yeah, yeah, the classic examples, I want to go to the kitchen, get a cup of coffee. My carbon atoms, my hydrogen atoms, my oxygen atoms, and all the rest of my atoms get dragged along in a trajectory, which is driven, in some sense, top down by my cognitive desire to go have a cup of coffee. And yet, assuming that we're one realm, non-dualist thinkers, the cognition that I want to go get a cup of coffee is, in some sense, driven from the bottom up from my carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, chlorine, sulfur, and all the rest. So yeah, this is the classic, interesting challenge of thinking about emergence. And, and yeah, exactly. And that Gordian knot, you know, people have been thinking about that for a while now. And um, I think that there are a few trajectories uh, of cutting that Gordian knot that are quite interesting right now. They orbit around the concept of constraints and the reason they orbit around the concept of constraints, uh, I, I'll back up a little bit. So I'll say there's a there's an anthropologist slash philosopher of science by the name of Terence Deacon, and uh, he wrote this book called Incomplete Nature, which is a really great book. Anyone who's interested in emergence, it's probably the book that I'd recommend above all others. So Deacon had this idea of n-tensional properties, e-n, not i-n, uh, n-tensional properties, namely those are the types of properties that can uh, direct us that are that that are not in the physical world, but that certain types of organisms uh, seem to organize their behavior around at high levels. So just like you want to get that cup of coffee and then, you know, they can use that to drive their physical systems towards these states that were imagined, right, that were not part of the world, but the organisms wish to be part of their world. And so, you know, uh, Deacon places this problem as like the central problem in his in his work. And he also connects us to this idea of the homunculus, these homuncular problems uh, of a lot of modern science in terms of the fact that much of the causality around these intentional properties are often uh, encapsulated in some explanation that is just pushing the explanation back a level or back two levels, but not actually addressing this fundamental intentional issue. Um, you know, he inherits that homuncular uh, language from the idea of a homunculus in the mind uh, being the driver of human behavior, which is just pushing the problem back because, you know, the whole purpose was to say, well, what is the human doing and what phenomenon are giving rise to the human's behavior? And if your answer is, well, there's a small person in the mind controlling the show, you really haven't answered anything. And so he, he draws the analogy, um, you know, to many of our scientific reductionistic answers that many of these are homuncular when it comes to this question of how do they actually end up contributing to the ability of systems to pursue goals or desires that are not actually uh, part of the material world. And, you know, he ties that in with this question of, you know, this problem that we were talking about earlier with respect to the fact that if you look at the traditional ideas of emergence, and you say that emergence is actually a system where you get something in addition to the parts by a certain organization of the parts, you introduce these philosophical issues. And he kind of flips this script on its head. And it's not just him doing this. There are some other interesting biologists that we could talk about later 
who are working with certain similar ideas, but he does so by flipping it and saying, well, what if we're actually talking about constraint systems? And what if we're, what if we're not talking about an addition of anything new, but we're talking about very specific ways of reducing the possibility space of a system such that that system is far more likely to exhibit certain tendencies that it would not have otherwise exhibited. So you're not adding any new possibilities. You're just dramatically reducing the states of the system such that it is far more likely to actually uh, exhibit like a, 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 an ordered property that it would not have exhibited if it was just left to its own devices to meander across all of its possibilities. So think of like a piston in an engine. The reason the piston in the engine can do work is because of the fact that we constrain the behaviors of the gases and, and the fact that like if you just had gases and you had no constraints around them and you, you excited them, even if they were combustible, it just disperses into the air, right? The heat disperses evenly into the air and you're not going to harness that to do any sort of work. And therefore, it's not going to be integratable into any sort of larger, more complex system. And so you end up Seeing that from this new perspective of constraints, you can, without adding anything new to the world, change the likely probabilities that a system will explore certain configurations such that you are way more likely to observe at macro scales uh, certain properties that you wouldn't have otherwise observed. And so he kind of skirts this problem and therefore introduces a new way of looking at emerges that is very much appealing away a reduction of the system's ability to explore unconstrained spaces, as opposed to this idea that you're adding something new. I think this is a very uh, important aspect to, to think about. And I think it's actually, it, it, it's already bearing fruit, especially in the field of theoretical biology. And we can talk about that more, but I, I think I'll pause here and just get your reaction and what you think about this. Yeah, that's very good stuff. So I have to go back and read that book. I started reading it early on and kind of got waved off by people at the Santa Fe Institute for various reasons. I love Deacon's The Symbolic Species, and I point people to that book for understanding the, about the emergence of language, but I have to go back and read that book on emergence. Anyway, two things I'd like to say. One, you said that don't exist, meaning like Jim's desire to go get a coffee, right? And I'd suggest that that is too limited a view on what exists, on what is our ontology in our universe, because I would suggest that not only do we have objects in our ontology or in our universe, but we have relations, right? And specifically, we have dynamic patterns in time. And so my desire to go get a cup of coffee is a manifestation of dynamic patterns of firings in my brain that are unique or unique enough to that sense of Jim wants to get up and get a cup of coffee. So I would suggest that Deacon's language is surprisingly a little too reductive there, that his ontology isn't broad enough to include dynamic relations as part of things that are real. So that's one pushback. And that's something I would say I did not necessarily have an appreciation for until relatively recently that we need to open up a little bit in terms of what is real and give the status of reality to relations. Secondly, the idea of taking things away as the basis for emergence, I would say, yes. In fact, the two people I get my thinking about emergence from principally would both agree, and I think did so long before Deacon's. The person I've probably gotten the most from with respect to thinking about emergence is Harold Morowitz. He wrote a book called The Emergence of Everything, where he literally starts out with the Big Bang 
lays out 28 levels of emergence from the Big Bang itself. And 27th is philosophy. 28th is the spiritual, right? He specifically in the book from you know the very beginning says that pruning rules are key to emergence, right? And that pruning rules can come in various forms. You know, some are appear to be built into the nature of the universe. For instance, the Pauli exclusion principle about where electrons can be, that pruning rule when applied to fundamental particles turns out to give us the organization of periodic table. How about that? Right? From what's probably a built-in physical law, at least to the level that we currently understand quantum mechanics, which, as you know, isn't all that good. They can also be statistical phenomena. For instance, in biology, we know that there's speciation. You know, my home academic field is evolutionary computing. So I actually see this in action in evolutionary computation, where species tend to form. The reason being is those individuals which are closest to the right place in an ecological niche will outperform those that aren't. And they also co-evolve fighting for niche space with other species. So you end up with species separated by some amount of space in the creature design phase space. And of course, there's always individuals in between. That's how evolution works. But in general, they tend to be pushed by statistical evolutionary forces towards this idea of competitive exclusion. And hence, we get speciation with all the macroscopic things that that has to do with evolution. And that is not a law of physics. That's a statistical regularity. And then, of course, another example he gives is frozen accidents. You know, for instance, early, early in life on Earth, metabolism happened to lock into right-handed forms of sugar, you know, right-handed in the chirality of molecules. If you remember organic chemistry in college, you'd hold your fingers up and point different directions. You can either do it with the right hand or the left hand. And it turns out that right-hand sugars only bind with, I think it's left-hand nucleic acids and such. And so this right-handed, left-handedness is utterly arbitrary in organic chemistry, kind of like left side of the road, right side of the road driving. But once biology locked into right-handed sugars, there's really no way for biology after that point to explore what left-handed sugars might be able to do. So those are all what Morowitz would call pruning rules. And it sounds very similar to what Deacon was getting at. The other person who I've taken a fair bit from with respect to thinking about emergence is John Holland, a very good book called Emergence from Chaos to Order. And it's, I would say, a more narrow book than Morowitz's, but he comes up with the idea, because he's a computer science guy, he's the guy that invented genetic algorithms and a bunch of other interesting things in computer science. In fact, he was one of the very first PhDs in computer science in the world. It's kind of interesting. He has the idea of constrained generating procedures that at least in artificial worlds, which is mostly what he explored, to get emergence, you know, again, you can't be exploring all possibility spaces. You get this combinatoric explosion, nothing interesting happens. But with constraint generating procedures, interesting things can emerge. So I would say that those ideas are, you know, prior to Deacon's, both of those two guys. And Deacon probably ran across their ideas and incorporated them into his own. Oh, definitely, definitely. So just just to set the context a little bit, uh, you know, Deacon Deacon is a historian and anthropologist of science, as well as to some extent trying to to synthesize these paths into a higher order narrative, right? So he is by no means claiming that you know he's he's generating these ideas. He's taking a highly synthetic perspective, knowing it and having observed these many different explorations and concepts um, in the domain of emergence. So yeah, he's definitely 
a posteriori or after many of these other initial thinkers, especially those who were, were primarily uh, exploring this in the computational realm. But I also I wanted to kind of go back to uh, you know, your multiple points, and there's a few things I wanted to hit through there. I hope I can remember them. Um, but you know, this idea, also this notion of the ontology and the question of the coffee and the desire and, and its, its ontological status, whether it exists or not. I want to be a little bit more clear. I, I definitely wasn't saying. Uh, I was just trying to set the stage from the perspective of the pure material reductionist, right? The idea that if we took a, a very traditional reductionistic perspective, we're not necessarily including this idea of possibles within that, which is uh, actually, you know, in the complexity world, a person is who you probably know, uh, Stuart Kaufman, right? He has argued recently strongly as well for the ontological status of, of possibles, right? Yeah, the famous adjacent possible, right? Yeah, the adjacent possible and ontologically real possibles. And he does this for, for many good reasons, but primarily you see that you know, there are certain phenomena that actually it's very difficult to explain without understanding the fact that possibility space changing based on updates locally, like the possibility space is not actually constrained, at least according to Kaufman, he makes the assertion that possibility spaces are not constrained in the way that physical or material spaces that we understand mathematically at present are constrained in the sense that if I change something locally, I am automatically updating the possibility space for the entire landscape. And this, this relates to another thing that you were talking about, which is the, the chirality, which is really, you know, chirality is, is a mirror symmetry, right? If you hold one molecule to a mirror, you see mirror image, you have the inverse mirror symmetry of that, which is the, the chirality question. And, you know, sometimes it's arbitrary. It's often arbitrary which one of those gets chosen. But the interesting thing about what happens after it gets chosen, as you're talking about, you're talking about this series of consequences that propagate outwards once a particular preference regime comes into being or, or, or gains momentum, right? And it, it sort of moves outward like a wave front. And the way that this was studied in the complexity world initially was discovered in, in spin glasses. Are you familiar with? Oh, yes, absolutely. But tell the audience. The audience probably doesn't. So tell them a little bit about spin glass. Yeah, so without going into uh, a pedantic level of detail, spin glasses refer to materials where the magnetic state of the local uh, regions of that material, so the magnetic poles associated with typically atoms or small molecules, they each have a preference. So if you have a ferromagnet, like the kind of magnet that people are familiar with, all of the little micromagnetic poles are aligned with the macroscopic behavior of that magnet. It's all sort of point, pointing in a line with a positive and negative pole. But you can create situations with certain materials where you heat them up and all of the magnetic poles are kind of spinning every which way. And then if you cool them down at the right pace, which is called a quench event, you sort of lock in all of those random preferences of the pole, you partially lock them in. And that's kind of the same idea as the symmetry breaking, right? Because you can kind of look at their degrees of freedom being able to go everywhere, this paramagnetic state, this heated state as a, as a symmetry, right? Which is actually the rotational symmetry that's similar to certain symmetries that we can get into with particle physics if we wanted to. But in any case, basically that symmetry is locked in locally and then it's kind of like a preference, right? So every single local magnetic pole wants to align the other magnetic poles around it in a way that is 
least frustrating. And, and, and frustrating is essentially this idea that you have energy bound up. If two molecules have gotten locked together near each other, but they want to move yet can't because they're held in by all the other molecules or all the other you know structural molecules or, or atoms around them, basically they have this metastable lock-in of energy where you have this, this amount of energy that can be released in certain local places. So you get this these regimes in these materials where you get almost like bit flipping of these poles and then the preferences will spread out from little local points and then they actually come into contact with one another, right? So let's say that like you had a universe and you could think of this as this chirality question. Well, if in one part of the universe, the chirality, the symmetry broke in one direction and another part of the universe, the symmetry broke in another direction and those spread out through whatever material substrate they're in, they eventually get to a border, a boundary, right? They form a boundary because they have incompatible preferences, right? Like you were saying earlier, uh, if you're talking about the chirality of, of certain molecular regimes, they're no longer compatible with one another. So that would be the same thing as like if you had two different alien species from different planets that had somehow had you know, different genetic chirality, uh, they would not be able to procreate with one another. Or you can say that, and this is where we get into these questions of more generalized emergence, these, these regimes based on preferential symmetry breakage locally and how that propagates outwards through space and time, you can also map that to, you know, for example, why the geopolitical maps often look the way that they do. You know, nation states weren't always locked into their particular boundary structures. Uh, they emerged locally. We had local growth phenomenon and local cultural preferences and local, local behavioral dynamics. And these expand until they meet uh, resistance in the form of another expanding uh, cultural regime. I mean, if we're not taking into account like rivers or mountains or oceans, right? We're talking about just continental dynamics. And then you get these boundary conditions and you know, the interesting thing about these boundary conditions is that they're not entirely stable. They're metastable, right? In the same way that in these spin glasses, you get these boundaries and then something can change or break and that entire boundary can dissolve and one regime can sweep through and take another regime over. This same pattern can occur in other systems, including human systems, which is kind of what we're observing in the most general sense. I don't want to... <laughs> Uh, brush too much over all of the very specific dynamics of what's going on in this very specific happening today in, in Ukraine and Russia. But at some level, you can look at that as this, this sort of the boundary gave way or is giving way for a set of reasons that has to do with local preference regimes wanting to further expand and the, the boundary of the other regime no longer being able to sufficiently resist that preference, right? And so this idea goes very deep into the topic of this, this, this concept of local preferences propagating outwards, giving rise to conflict regimes along boundary structures that are metastable has also a lot to do with this question of possibility spaces that we were talking about earlier because of the fact that there are different models or different ways that you can think about causality occurring in these emergent metastable regimes. Um, some of them are purely local. So all of the causality has to percolate outwards from point to point to point on the map. And some models, so those are called like the Edwards-Anderson models mostly. And then there's like Sherrington-Kirkpatrick models, which have 
non-local effects. And the non-local effects are interesting because that's where you start getting into this idea of A, how possibilities change realities, even if they're not moving locally through space and time as we know it. Um, and you could kind of also map that onto as a, as a loose but possibly interesting conversation, how digital and communication infrastructure in today's world changes local realities of, of conflict boundaries as well, right? Uh, the, the way that the world reacts and sees in, in, at light speed in real time is a different dynamic than the mid 20th century or early 20th century when information really did have to propagate out much more slowly and, and the different dynamics that, that that enables or changes. This all has to do with this question of how people observe possibilities and how those possibilities change instantaneously even before the information travels through space and time. So that's a lot, but yeah. Yeah, let me respond to some of that. I got a lot of different things to say about that. Let me talk about the last one first, which is this propagation of information. Currently, I'm doing a relatively deep dive into the French Revolution and reading various things about it and had a Zoom chat with an expert about the French Revolution yesterday. At one point he made, says, don't miss this point. Unlike today, the French Revolution, 1789 to 1799, essentially, was before the telegraph, right? It was before the railroad. The fastest means of communications was the horse. And so things would happen in Paris and they wouldn't hear about it in Marseille for, you know, a week. And it might take a month to get to some remote village in the mountains. And that's a very different world. And it's why so much of the intellectual fervor was in Paris, because Paris was locally connected, right? There was a whole bunch of newsletters and pamphleteers and political meeting houses and stuff. And so new ideas and trends and calls to action in the street could propagate in Paris in hours, while it could not propagate into the rest of the country, let alone to the rest of the world in anything like real time. As compared, of course, today, where literally what's happening in Ukraine is heard in the world in seconds. The world's responses, at least the cognitive responses, could be echoed back to Russia and China in seconds or in minutes, at least. And that's a very, very different world. And when one thinks about the degrees of freedom that that gives for emergence in our mimetic space, let's call it the meme space, I think we truly don't really understand that space very well because of the fact of the complete lack of latency and also in many forms, particularly in the online world, a lack of viscosity. One of the other things I take it from the French Revolution is their problem was their political institutions did not have enough viscosity. They could switch and go from one extreme to the other very rapidly. And we saw these oscillations between the radical enlightenment people who then were overthrown by Robespierre and the terror who were then overthrown by Thermidor, it was then overthrown by the directorate. And so there was these radical fluctuations because the institutions didn't have enough viscosity. That's a, another question for another day. But let's get back to spin glasses and things like those. And interestingly, people listen to the show regularly. know, I talk about Game B, sort of social political idea for designing a new social operating system for society. And we actually take these ideas fairly seriously in our thinking. In fact, on the landing page for our online community at game-b.org, the quote at the top of the page is, when a system is far from equilibrium, small islands of coherence have the capacity to shift the entire system from Ilya Prigozhin. 
So these ideas aren't just theoretical, they're actually practical, even at the level of social movements. And the next step is to go to Perosian and his ideas that many, though not all, emergent systems happen in systems that are far from equilibrium and that the emergences tend to actually be what he calls dissipative structures. And if you think of a system that's far from equilibrium, simplest way to think about it is that there's an energy flux through the system comes in one end, out the other. And in some sense, this energy is the fuel that allows emergence to occur. And then the structures that emerge use up, dissipate the energy, essentially in the form of you know, higher level energy gets produced into lower level energy. For instance, the high level energy of the sun hitting a chlorophyll cell, chlorophyll filled cell, you know, gets turned into sugars, which are even higher quality, but then downstream they're reduced to CO2 coming out of our mouths and waste products going out into the soil, a much lower energetics and information state. So essentially life is sunlight coming in, CO2 and shit going out, (laughs) and the stuff in between are emergences that are powered by the system being far from equilibrium. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, you have you have essentially some sort of cycle sandwiched in between a source of potential energy and then thermodynamic waste of some sort, lower potential states. You say shit, right? And that is exactly what shit is. Shit is exactly these structures that have, you know, this goes back to this idea of constraints as well, the potential energy or the, the state of a system that lends that system potential energy, whether it's a photon, whether it's uh, elevation in light of gravity, there are constraints that keep the system in that semi-stable or metastable state until humans or some entity learns how to release that energy or use that energy. And that is then internalized into this cycle, like what Kaufman calls autocatalytic cycles uh, or work cycles. Uh, and those cycles are able to reinforce themselves, but also they they can't necessarily because of thermal you know because of the second law of thermodynamics, they in doing useful work internally in maintaining their internal structure, they must also generate macroscopically entropy. They must make the the larger system uh, more disordered in which they exist. And you know, this has a lot to do with game B, especially with respect to the questions of short and long-term time horizons or time preferences, given the fact that you can very directly map externalities, especially over high time preference activity, to this idea of having very intensive cycles, very intensive processes that we use to perform work where we don't necessarily manage, we don't necessarily care about where we're getting that potential energy from or where it's going. And you know, I think much of what we do have control over, I mean, we can, we can talk utopianism all day in terms of what is possible, but you know, what we actually do have pragmatic control over to some extent is energy source inputs and waste outputs and the ability to actually consciously examine where those inputs are coming from and where those outputs are going to. And if, if we're actually able to reclaim, um, you know, the more general or remote the energy source from the cycles of energy usage that other processes on earth depend on probably for the better and then also to the extent that our our waste products aren't being put out into the world in a way that are fundamentally disruptive to the inputs of other systems and that they're not necessarily just accumulating 
as unusable either biomass or, or trash, right? That allows for both the increased resilience and hopefully the more coherent integration as you're, you're talking about this word coherent, right? Because if we're going to form new patterns of coherence, new coherent subgroups, those subgroups, you know, one way of gaining that higher level of coherence or that higher leverage over previous modes of game may interaction is actually you know, using waste as energy in, in creative in creative ways, right? And also producing new emergences, right? There's a lot of room in human institutional space to create, particularly now that we have networks. You know, people say, well, why didn't game B happen before? So because we didn't have the networks. You know, the networks open up a whole large adjacent possible that wasn't possible in 1789 by any means. You know, I like John Holland, one of his descriptions of emergence. This was an attribute of some kinds of emergence, and he would argue that evolution tends to push towards these kind. The interactions of agents produce an aggregate entity that is more flexible and adaptable than its component parts. So I would suggest one way to think about that is as we're finding our way in the high dimensional design space of a new and better society, can we trigger emergences or guide or nudge towards emergences that produce more flexible and adaptive, higher level abstractions, emergent phenomena than what we have today? Emergences without emergencies. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, the, the relations of the network are huge in the sense, and that's something that, you know, I, I, in every conversation I have about this, I try to bring up this idea of, of complexity catastrophe as well, because I think it, it deeply ties into this question you're talking about in terms of, you know, we have the ability to network ourselves together, but the way in which we connect ourselves to one another is deeply connected or deeply correlated with whether or not that system that is produced can actually evolve productively or adapt resiliently. And this was explored, again, by Kaufman in his theoretical explorations that were summarized in The Origins of Order, which is, his, I think, his first main book. Quite a dense book, but a good read. But this idea of the complexity catastrophe emerged out of his exploration, theoretically and computationally, of uh, what he created as NK adaptive landscapes. And so like the N was the number of agents and the K, well, really he was doing this initially with respect to genetics and, and this concept of epistasis. And the concept of epistasis is like, you know, which alleles or which genes are able to affect the expression of other genes, right? So it's like the actions of one thing in a system are contingent upon the actions of another. How much of that contingency, like how many dependencies can something have before it becomes maladaptive, right? And he was doing a lot of this exploration. He, he realized that if you turn that K knob up, if you make everything too dependent or complexly related to everything else, you actually get a, a distinct crash in the adaptive capacity of that system, which, which relates also to this question of viscosity, I think you were talking about. Because to some extent, when you talk about viscosity, viscosity is a function, it's like kind of a density function. It's also kind of therefore an energy function. Oftentimes, highly viscous structures they can't move. They don't have as many degrees of freedom for a number of reasons. It could be chemical properties and it can be thermal properties and it can be other properties as well. But what we're really talking about is, you know, how much causal interdependence is there? And in a low viscosity system, there's a lot less causal interdependence of each respective part of that system. 
in a high viscosity system, there's a lot less than there is in a low viscosity system, right? Low viscosity system, if you add a bunch of heat to that, everything's interacting with everything else. And that can catalyze certain processes, but there's also a reason why the majority of complex life doesn't exist in extremely high energy regions, right? Because you need the ability for those complex structures to actually stabilize without being constantly disrupted by uh, energy inputs or, or chaotic dependencies on other parts of the system. And I think this is an essential lesson when we're thinking about network design or when we're thinking about what it means for us to communicate as large groups of human beings. The idea that we should all be put in large open networks with unbounded communicative capacity and you know observing everyone else's outputs and then reacting to them at all times. I mean, that maps nearly one-to-one to this complexity catastrophe idea of Kaufman, and he showed that that, that, isn't, that mode isn't capable of reaching the highest peaks on these fitness landscapes. And so there's something about this intentional viscosity and this intentional reduction of connectivity or, or causal interference that we need to address when it comes to the design and the thinking around these new communication networks. Absolutely. First thing, Origins of Order by Stuart Kaufman is a really good book. As Matthew said, it's a very dense book, but it was actually the second book I read in my early explorations into complexity after John Holland's, what the hell is the name of it? Something like Adaptation, Natural, Artificial Systems. That was the one I read first, and I read Origins of Order. And it really is a fundamental book. And it's where the idea, sort of a derivative of the NK experiments and thinking, that what's really interesting, usually, and interesting in some real sense, the word interesting has meaning, is that space between chaos and rigidity, right? And viscosity, I suspect, is one of the knobs that could help us get to that in our network world. Because as you say, everybody connected to everybody just doesn't work. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. I mean, if only because there's a pruning rule, which is we only have X amount of quality attention. And a structure of everybody connected to everybody means so many messages coming by, we can't make any sense of them at all because of our cognitive limitations, essentially. Did a podcast earlier in the week with Douglas Rushkoff. We talked about the future of the internet. And one of the things we were both just musing about was, hey, what would happen if you had Twitter, but you were only allowed to do one post and three comments a day, right? Would it be better? And we thought, probably, right? There's an example of where you could add viscosity into a system in a very simplistic kind of way, and it might well make the system better. Yeah, I mean, and we get into this question of better for whom, right? I mean, there's this interesting, I, I, I think that in terms of an information processing or collective intelligence mechanism, it would definitely make the system more effective. And it would definitely make the system something more healthy to interact with. That said, I don't necessarily think that it would make the system more profitable for Twitter, at least in the short run. Yeah, yeah, we were not using that as our fitness function, to be sure. We both agreed. No, exactly. Yeah, the current fitness functions are fucked, right? They're driving our systems to a point that are driving us insane, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think it's it's literally, I mean, I, I like to make the analogy that whether it's intentional or not, what they've done is they've taken that complexity catastrophe dynamic and they've truly turned it into a what I consider a mimetic reactor, which is directly analogous to something like a nuclear reactor. And there are control rods that can be used to increasingly that chaos, that chaos that's generated by all of those causal dependencies 
is indiscernible, like we we're talking about thermodynamically from the concept of heat. And that heat is a form of, you know, it, it, in the thermodynamic terms, it can be used to perform work. And in the terms of Twitter, within the memetic space, that heat, that conflict, that constant fitness function that is maximizing engagement is definitely saleable, right? Because you're, you're putting, you can put information in front of people's consciousness. But it's also interesting because like it, it's weird because you get into these strange cycles of incentives because then you also say, well, if, if Twitter is there doing internal analysis on what ads are most effective, but the analysis is being done in a context of highly agitated complexity catastrophe, what they're really discovering is what kind of information or what kind of products people are most responsive to or responsive to at all only in that phenomenological state, right? So this is why I would say like we, we get we get also a race to the bottom, not only in terms of the dynamics of the conversation, but also in the second order dynamics of the types of ads and the types of products, the types of uh, opportunities that will be put in front of us and seem to be successful within this dynamic. Whereas in the network that you're talking about, where people might be you know in a little bit more of a lower time preference modality, it might actually make sense to have advertisements or, or opportunities in this space that are actually contributing much more to uh, the real value creation of our society, as opposed to sort of more parasitic monetary extraction, which is what most of those advertisements are geared toward now. I mean, most of these are just highly salient mimetic images on Twitter, like the, the advertisements. I don't know if you've noticed these much, but especially recently, these highly salient mimetic images uh, that are that are just these these sort of content click farms where people go and you know gather images of either highly sexualized nature or highly dangerous nature or, or whatever, and then they put a, you know twenty of these images together and then just you know harvest attention and sell you know, advertisements um, upriver. It's a new emergence, essentially, the fact that this ecosystem of capturing eyeballs to hijack your attention and to get you in a highly agitated and reactive state. The things say. 20 celebrities, you don't believe what they look like today, right? <laughs> and some really gross picture of some, you know, 80s sitcom star or something. And then you actually go to it. People tell me I would never do that myself, right? And, you know, you get some pictures plus a bunch of like the cheesiest ads imaginable, you know, dick pills and, you know, the kind of stuff they used to sell on late night cable TV for two for 1995. It's really an emergence, quite literally, from the new ecosystem that this attention hijacking, agitated state phenomena of, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the new kid on the block, the absolute fentanyl of online TikTok have turned into quite an art form. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fentanyl is certainly a good analogy. I mean, this is the thing. It's like part of this is intentional design. And, you know, you can kind of look at this as if we are on an adaptive landscape, what is the purpose of the networks we're are taking in. And it's hard for the individual to step outside and see, you know, what is this system I'm in? And, and is it actually moving towards something that is desirable? But yeah, it, it seems very unlikely that spending the vast majority of our time and, and attention and consciousness within these mimetic reactors that are designed for attentional extraction has much to do with solving any of the problems or even making progress on any of the problems we find ourselves with today. And then our responsibility is to ask, well, what does it mean to design systems that actually are much more like exploratory vehicles upon this landscape, as opposed to, uh, you know, sort of extractive mechanisms that really only amplify 
the, the issues themselves. Yeah, this is where you get to the concept of emergence, taken literally and not by analogy. We can think of some of the work that we're trying to do as engineering for emergence. But emergence that we think, at least, of course, one of the things about emergence, you don't really know exactly what you get, but you have some reason to believe will be better than the alternative. You know, For instance, the intentionally viscous thing that's sort of like social media. Or another one that I think I threw out on the Rushkoff podcast, I'm not sure, but imagine a Facebook where you were limited to the Dunbar number of 150 friends, right? It would have a different network topology. Messages would propagate on it differently at different rates, and that would produce a different emergence than the kind of stuff that we see on Facebook, for instance. Yeah, definitely. And also, I mean, I think another degree of freedom that, that we can play with there is, you know, th- this, this concept of skin in the game or this concept of binding the representations on these networks to real actions or real costs in the world, right? Like the idea that, you know, in, in many ways, we have this phrase, right? For someone to spin their wheels means kind of this internal mental process where you're cycling and cycling and cycling through concepts, but never mapping those concepts into action in the world that that moves the ball forward on, on some purpose that you have, right? For support some goal that you actually want to bring into reality in your physical immediate environment or in your community or your family. And in many ways, our entire digital infrastructure in these social media spaces is decoupled from those kinds of like proof of action or proof of real work, right? This idea that there's something that like, yes, there's value in new connections and new ideas and exploration, but the purpose of them is fundamentally to inform action, to inform uh, some sort of action in your local reality, typically. Or these days, not necessarily just in your local reality, you, you could you know, have an action that propagates throughout one of these networks as well. But we don't want to end up in a situation where we're just trapped in these cycles of extraction without having the ability to, to think about how our communication or our goals are actually mapping to real world actions. And I think that that's something that I love seeing like on Twitter, for example, and especially you know, I, this is almost an emergent property of, I think, community norms, right? You you interviewed Jason and Ashley, the Doomer Optimist crowd, or pseudo leaders to the extent there are leaders of that Doomer Optimist movement. And you know, that sub-network on Twitter, I think you know, it's interesting the relationship between norms and and the dynamics of the system itself, because you know, I think that subspace of Twitter demonstrates that you know, there's a much higher ratio of people in that space sharing things that they're doing sharing projects that they're working on, sharing progress that they've made on, on the land or in their garden or some new skill that they've learned. And you know, seeing the cycles of, of feedback and positivity there, that's not just trivial positivity, right? It's also curiosity. It's also people adding extra information about how to more effectively pursue a goal or, or, or implement the same process. You know, that's one of the things I really like about that community. And they also show that that, that is possible even in these otherwise highly volatile online spaces. Now, can there be tools created to facilitate that even further and to to catalyze those relations and that advice sharing and that mapping of conversation onto actual action that improves the world? Like, yeah. And I think that that's deserving of a lot more attention than it's presently receiving. We happened to find an experiment on that a couple of years ago when Facebook tried to suppress the Game B movement on Facebook, probably accidentally due to a bug in their algorithms. But we got pissed off and we moved to our own private network, which has a very different design. It's much cooler 
you're not sucked into constant arguing and chit chat. It's a little harder to find things. It feels like it's more reputationally expensive to post, etc. And you might think those are bad things, but it was our sense that they're not, that they actually produced a slower moving, more viscous, but more valuable community with an ability to do emergences at a higher level. For instance, this particular platform, the Mighty Network platform that we use, a white label platform, allows the community to create its own sub-communities internally within it, right? Which you don't have, for instance, in a group on Facebook. You can do parallel communities, but you can't do subsidiary community. So, you know, these intentionally viscous in some ways and some new functionality in other ways produces a different emergence. And so thinking about your pruning rules to get back to, you know, Harold Morowitz is, you know, probably part of what it means to be doing engineering for emergence. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think that it's also, you know, I I know that before we start recording, we, we also talked a little bit about these ideas of some of our cultural encodings associated with transcendental philosophies or, or religions. And you know, sometimes I think these hold value or are interesting. And I think that, you know, one little example here, especially just aphoristically or, or, or linguistically, you know, this idea of like, you, know, you will know them by their fruits, right? And I think that that actually has a lot to do with this concept of emergence is probably a grasping at the idea of how do we actually understand, given the complexity and opacity of underlying dynamics or what's happening in people's heads or what's happening invisibly throughout our network, how do we understand the quality of that network or or the directionality? Where is it heading? And you know that by the fruits, you know that by what is actually produced, what are the artifacts of that community or what are the artifacts of the thought processes? You know, if someone's demonstrating or exhibiting thought processes that are leading them into depressive states continuously, now I understand that that can be a sort of attractor that, that can be endogenously or inescapable or you know, can be something that's not just related to thought patterns, but there are definitely modes of thought where you can think yourself into depressive states or, or, or counterproductive states, or you can think yourself into violent states um, and you can spread that through networks. And you could think yourself into states that, you know, you, you believe that it's not even worth putting effort toward creating anything because the entire world is going to be destroyed in X, Y, years, Z years anyways. But there's this interesting question of, well, okay, what are the kinds of axioms or the kinds of heuristics that we can bring to our daily life and to our communities and to our social networks that allow us to uh, produce artifacts that reflect back to us more of the world we want to see, that, that reflect back to us a concrete example of the manifestation of our values in the world. And I think that in this world of networks and virtual reality, and I don't mean virtual reality just as in how people think about VR, I mean kind of the mimetic or conceptual virtualization of reality through the fact that we live inside this network of almost a collective unconscious of partially formed thoughts being shared instantaneously at the speed of light around the world continuously in that space, how do we actually come back to action and come back to the coherent coordination of connecting these words to behaviors? And how do you connect those behaviors such that they actually ladder up into something that, as we were talking about earlier, as those preferences or behaviors propagate their consequences or causal regimes outwards, and when they meet other causal regimes or other preferences, they're more likely to find synthesis or integration. They're more likely to find positive sum outcomes than they are to want to simply dominate or want to simply 
uh, steamroll another set of preferences in the short term. So this is integral, I think, to the idea of creating any kind of network or communities that could, in theory, displace game A, given the primary termination modes of game A have everything to do with the stakes of the mentality of uh, you know, conflict and steamrolling at the scale at which we we can you know, destroy everything. How do we get away from the multipolar trap? Actually, we're, a group of us are working on that right now. Stay tuned for some information fairly soon. Now, we've talked about emergence from the definitional level. We talked a bit about it in theory. We've talked about some examples. We've talked about some of the thinkers who have been effective and important in this field. We've gone through some real-world possibilities for what I called engineering for emergence. Now let's turn back to what originally caused me to reach out to you on Twitter, where you suggested that you had some ideas around the grammar and axioms of emergence. What can you say, particularly about the grammar of emergence? What do you mean when you say that? Well, when I say that, I mean, that has a lot to do with this transition uh, and the perspective of emergence with, you know, with respect to the constraint-based perspective that we've been talking about. When you think about grammar, if you just look at the, the superficial definition of grammar, you see that it has to do with the constraints surrounding the way in which our expressions, our words, our phrases can be put together such that meaning emerges from them. That is uh, comprehensible by other actors uh, who are the receivers of these expressions. That's grammar. Grammar is the way, the order, the way in which we pluck from possibility space, the giant possibility spaces that we've been talking about. Um, specific combinations that actually are able to communicate information and coordinate action. And so when I'm talking about this grammar of emergence or axioms of emergence, what I'm trying to kind of get at is a, a different way of approaching the ontology and epistemology of our world, of our, of our reality, of the way that most people begin to think about or or. or try to ascertain an understanding of the things that are happening around them. So, you know, one, one, like if we go all the way back to the beginning of this question, you know, we realize that if we accept the axiom or if we accept the idea that all structure must emerge bottom up, and then those structures can parameterize other previously emergent structures top down, right? So like things have to actually come into being from simpler structures into spaces of more complexity. And they don't always have to go monotonically or, or only in that direction. Like you can have, uh, you know, complexity ca catastrophe, you can have collapse. You know, that can be kind of a random walk to some extent. But the whole point is that when we see complex objects, you know, especially in a world before we had any frame of reference for talking about emergence or bottom-up order, how did we approach reality? How do we approach understanding? Well, we came at it from an outside-in perspective. We came at it from a top-down perspective. From that initial perspective, we were coming from the outside in. We were coming from the highest states of complexity and trying to reduce them to simpler rules, which is part of that dissective frame of reference we were talking about earlier. So, you know, for the majority of modernity, one might even consider that the entire foundation of modernity is related to this idea that uh, we are able to take complex structures, operate from the outside in, peeling back those layers, bringing them into parts, creating ontologies that allow us to categorize those parts, and then uh, developing tools, techniques, or frameworks, specializations, specialized domains, 
with respect to being able to perform work based on the knowledge we've gained. And that's gotten us quite far. You know, there's a lot of utility in that. I mean, I'm, I'm not denigrating that in any way. But what we're coming to realize is that we're now in a phase where so much of our ability to uh, take the next step depends on far more integrated processes. And as anyone who's taken a calculus class can tell you, integration is exponentially more difficult than differentiation, right? And I think there's, there's a fundamental reality, a fundamental truth there. It's not just because you're doing calculus. It's because of the fact that when you're doing something like differentiation, you can apply locally bounded rules, right? Which is very similar to the reductive paradigm where you can basically dissect reality into local subsets of reality that behave predictably. But when it comes to integration, you need a far broader understanding of the dynamics um, and tendencies of the systems that might be involved. And also there's this element of intuition to it. In many ways, integration is a much more of an art form. It's much more difficult to to fully reduce to analytic equations. And so I use grammar to talk about uh, this process as opposed to you know, the mathematics. I mean, axioms are similar, right? But axioms are actually, one might say, the grammar of any given mathematical perspective. And I say mathematical perspective because the perspective of possibilities in any given mathematical domain emerge from the axioms, right? The axioms are the fundamental combinatoric kernels of that mathematical space and how they are put together, all of the possibilities of how they are put together constitute the, all, the domain of possible expressions in that mathematical space. Mathematicians then go through that possible space, you know, examining, trying to basically find certain expressions that they can connect to other expressions such that they can demonstrate within those axioms that they are true. So it's a kind of a closed system. Um, but, but grammar and language, on the other hand, is a generative and open system in the sense that our language is evolving, our grammar tends to evolve, and the degree of permanence that structures that are generated by our grammar attain is related pragmatically mostly to their function in the world. Do they actually perform useful work? And can they be recombined with other structures to perform useful work, which is a much more pragmatic perspective than the formal or analytic perspective of mathematics. And so I think that in what we're beginning to see now, what is beginning to emerge across a number of uh, domains you know, at the Santa Fe Institute, at some other complexity research institutes with respect to you know, certain researchers in theoretical biology as well, we're starting to generate narratives and grammars around how we can think about patterns that are not domain specific and the, how those patterns, those grammars of emergence can be used as containers or locations, rallying points, let's say, for the process of, of, of coming to synthesize or integrate all of this uh, domain-specific knowledge that we have generated that are currently, you know, we, we kind of currently have this landscape, this post-Babel landscape of hyper-specialization. And to some extent, there's a great deal of value that we can derive from reintegrating some of that. And reintegration requires translation, requires grammar. And I don't think that we're going to find um, the ability to reintegrate or, or, or successfully integrate across those different specializations, those domains, through further grammars of differentiation, through more reduction. We have to be able to find synthesis. And, and that's very much what I would say this entire next 
episteme or this entire next paradigm that we're moving into is going to be about. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Well, we're coming up on our time here. Any final thoughts? Any wrap-up that you'd like to make? Oh, man. You know, I, I think that there's there's some other interesting stuff uh, with respect to Deacon that, that could be cool in, in light of that question of synthesis. I would say, I know maybe you got some recommendations against it, but I'd say it's, it's an interesting framework to download, at least, to think about. In terms of any parting messages, I would say that, you know, I, I am interested in working with anyone who's also interested or pursuing this kind of synthesis. There's a need for convergence, right? Because we don't want to recapitulate the same problem that, not a problem, but we don't want to recapitulate the same pattern of hyper-specialized language uh, when we're trying to create something that can help us synthesize these sources of information. And there's a tendency always toward that fragmentation in language. You know, even in conversations, for example, like conversations I'll have with, with Jordan Hall or, or others, we, we are approaching these same ideas um, and we're generating our own language for those ideas. And therefore, it's actually very important for us to find some way of coming together and, and actually synthesizing uh, and actually uh, laddering these up into something that people can focus on without being completely overwhelmed by this conceptual explosion. And so I just want to put my interest for, for doing that kind of process out there into the world and express to anyone who might also be interested in that. If that's the case, please come find me and, and, and let's work on that together a bit. Cool. Well, let's wrap it there. Matthew Perkowski, you can find him on Twitter at, at Matt Perkowski, P-I-R. K-O-W-S-K-I and thank you for a really interesting conversation here today. Thanks for having me, Jim. Enjoyed it. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.